0: In the course of organizing his Church, Jesus went out into the mountain to pray and continued in prayer all night to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. They were men called from the ordinary paths of life. Peter was the first called, and the Lord said to him, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." This same sacred authority is inherent in the ordination of every apostle. Paul taught that the apostles and prophets were called for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, and he declared that these offices would endure till we all come to a unity of faith and a knowledge of the Son of God. The apostles in time were gone, and with them the keys. Paul had prophesied of men being carried about by every wind of doctrine, and so it was, instead of unity of faith, there came division and disunity. It was in this circumstance that young Joseph Smith prayed to know which of all the Churches was true and which he should join. Joseph's vision of the Father and the Son opened this dispensation. Then came the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the same organization that existed in the primitive Church, built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. Some suppose that the organization was handed to the Prophet Joseph Smith like a set of plans and specifications for a building, with all of the details known at the beginning. But it did not come that way. Rather, it came piece at a time as the brethren were ready and as they inquired of God. The Melchizedek priesthood. The consummate authority given to man from God was restored under the hands of Peter, James, and John. By them the Lord said, I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and special witnesses of my name, and bear the keys of your ministry, and of the same things which I revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom, and the dispensation of the gospel. For the last times. The first presidency was in place by 1833. Then, two years later, in February of 1835, came the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And that is as it should be. The first presidency came first in sequence and stands first in authority. And, true to the pattern, it was made of men called from the ordinary pursuits of life. With the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve in place, with the officers of Seventy and presiding Bishop Brick revealed, the order, which was proper, prevails. But there is a difference. Perhaps President J. Reuben Clark said it best. Some of the general authorities, the apostles, have had assigned to them a special calling. They possess a special gift. They are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, which gives them a special spiritual endowment in connection with their teaching of this people. They have the right, the power, and the authority to declare the mind and will of God to His people, subject to the overall power and authority of the president of the Church." Others of the General Authorities are not given this special spiritual endowment. The resulting limitation applies to every other officer and member of the Church, for none of them is spiritually endowed as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Furthermore, President Clark said that among those chosen as the Twelve, as apostles and the presidency, only the President of the Church the presiding high priest, is sustained as prophet, seer, and revelator for the Church. He alone has the right to receive revelations for the Church, either new or amendatory, or to give authoritative interpretation of the scriptures that shall be binding on the Church, or change in any way the existing doctrines of the Church. It took a generation of asking and receiving before the order of things as We know it today was firmly in place. Each move to perfect that order has come about in response to a need and as an answer to prayer, and that process continues in our day. The Twelve are a traveling, presiding High Council to officiate in the name of the Lord under the direction of the presidency of the Church, agreeable to the institution of heaven, to build up the Church and regulate all of the affairs of the same in all nations. Where the First Presidency cannot go, the Twelve are sent. To unlock the doors of the kingdom in all places, they are commissioned to go to all the world, for the word apostle means one who is sent forth. Wherefore the Lord said, In whatsoever place ye shall proclaim my name, an effectual door shall be opened unto you, that they may receive my word. And he promised, Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God will lead thee by thy hand and give the answer to thy prayers. The twelve apostles are called to be special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. Each carries that certain witness that Jesus is the Christ. President Joseph Fielding Smith taught that every member of the Church should have the impressions on the soul made by the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Son of God, indelibly pictured so that they cannot be forgotten. From Nephi, we know that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. Mormon told us that the office of their ministry is to call men unto repentance, and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father which he hath made unto the children of men, to prepare the way among the children of men. Mormon further explained that angels accomplish their ministry by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord that they may bear testimony of Him. And by so doing the Lord God prepareth a way that the residue of men may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts according to the power thereof. And after this manner bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men. There is a power of discernment granted unto such as God shall appoint to watch over his Church." To discern means to see. President Harold B. Lee told me once of a conversation he had with Charles A. Callas of the Quorum of the Twelve. Brother Callas had remarked that the gift of discernment was an awesome burden to carry, to see clearly what is ahead, and yet find members slow to respond or resistant to counsel or even rejecting the witness of the apostles and prophets brings deep sorrow. Nevertheless, the responsibility of leading this Church, the Lord said, must rest upon us until you shall appoint others to succeed you. And he warned us of those few in the Church who have professed to know my name and have not known me and have blasphemed against me. In the midst of my house, thy voice the Lord commanded the twelve shall be a rebuke unto the transgressor, and at thy rebuke let the tongue of the slanderer cease its perverseness. Some few within the Church openly, or perhaps far worse, in the darkness of anonymity reproach their leaders in the wards and stakes and in the Church seeking to make them an offender for a word, as Isaiah said. To them the Lord said, Cursed are all those who shall lift up the heel against mine anointed, saith the Lord, and cry they have sinned when they have not sinned, but have done that which was meet in mine eyes and which I commanded them. But those who cry transgression... Do it, because they are the servants of sin and are the children of disobedience themselves. Because they have offended my little ones, they shall be severed from the ordinance of mine house, their basket shall not be full, their houses and their barns shall perish, and they themselves shall be despised by those that flatter them. They shall not have the right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them from generation to generation. That terrible penalty will not apply to those who try as best they can to live the gospel and sustain their leaders, nor need it apply to those who in the past have been guilty of indifference or even opposition if they will repent and confess their transgressions and forsake them. Recently, President Hinckley reminded the Brethren that while we are men called from the ordinary pursuits of life, there rests upon us a sacred ministry. And we take comfort in what the Lord said to the original twelve Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. And while each feels his own limitation, there is strength in unity. Never in the history of the Church have the Brethren of the Presidency and the Twelve been more united. Each week we meet together in the temple. We open the meeting by kneeling in prayer. We close with prayer. Every prayer is offered in the spirit of submission and obedience to Him who called us and whose servants we are. The Lord requires that every decision made by either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same, and that the decisions of these quorums are to be made in righteousness, holiness, lowliness of heart, meekness, long suffering, in faith and virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. This we earnestly strive to do. We know that we hold the power of the priesthood in connection with all of those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of the creation. We think of those who have preceded us in these sacred offices, and at times we feel their presence. We are overcome with what the Lord said of those who hold these sacred callings. Whatsoever they shall speak, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, shall be scripture. Shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God and the salvation. During a very difficult time, the Lord gave the sternest warning that I know of in all scripture. It had to do with the building of the Nauvoo temple. The saints knew from experience that to proceed to build a temple would bring terrible persecution. So they delayed. The Lord extended the time and said, If you do not these things at the end of the appointment, ye shall be rejected as a Church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. Often overlooked in that revelation is a marvelous promise. If my people will hearken unto my voice, and unto the voice of my servants, Whom I have appointed to lead my people, behold, verily, I say unto you, they shall not be moved out of their place. Remember this promise and hold on to it. It should be a great comfort to those struggling to keep a family together in a society increasingly indifferent to and even hostile toward those standards which are essential to a happy family. The promise is a restatement of what the Lord told the multitude. Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the word of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. I repeat the promise that those who hearken to the voice of these men whom the Lord has raised up shall not be moved out of their place. But the promise was followed with this caution "But if they will not hearken unto my voice nor unto the voice of these men whom I have appointed, they shall not be blessed. The most precious thing we have to give is our witness of the Lord, our testimony of Jesus Christ. I certify to you that the fourteen men with whom I share the ordination are indeed apostles, In declaring this, I say no more than the Lord has taught, no more than may be revealed to anyone who seeks with a sincere heart and real intent for an individual witness of the Spirit. These men are true servants of the Lord. Give heed to their counsel. So too with the seventy who, as special witnesses, carry an apostolic responsibility, and the bishopric, worthy men of God so too with the brethren and sisters across the world who are called to lead, who have earned that knowledge precious above all else. There are limits to what the Spirit permits us to say, and so I close simply with my witness, my special witness, that Jesus is the Christ, that through a prophet-president He presides over this, the only true and living Church, upon the face of the whole earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
1: Elder David B. Haight, Ensign Monson salutes you, Commander David B. Haight. We are Navy men together. I love him. And what a magnificent message. One of the most famous art galleries in the world is the National Gallery of Art situated adjacent to Trafalgar Square in the city of London, England. The gallery has on display many priceless masterpieces. Just a few weeks ago. My wife Frances and I visited the National Gallery and admired the display of inspired genius which met our gaze and touched our hearts. A large painting occupied most of the wall of one room. It was an incomparable piece by the renowned Bartolomé Esteban Murillo, completed in the year 1670, entitled, Christ healing the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The centuries have not dimmed its beauty, dulled its appeal, nor diminished its impact. I could not avert my eyes, nor could I transfer my thoughts. I was carried back through time as I saw the crippled man lying on his crude crutch, with his arms extended and his hands turned up. As he appealed to the Savior of the world, the thoughts and words expressed in the book of John coursed through my mind. I share them with you this morning, and I quote, Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty, and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. Close quote. At length, after pondering this scripture, I left the reverie of the room. However, the impact of that masterpiece was indelibly impressed on my soul. I have thought since of the Master's command, the tenderness of his heart, and the incredible joy his act had brought to the afflicted man. Jesus, the very thought of Thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far Thy face to see, and in Thy presence rest. Nor voice can sing nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than thy blessed name, O Savior of mankind. Do we remember the question posed by one Pontius Pilate as he spoke to those who would shed the blood of Jesus and thus end his mortal life? Quote, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ, They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And so he was. The question each of us must answer is the same. What shall I do with Jesus? He himself has provided us the answer. He said, Follow me and do the things which ye have seen me do. The mortal mission of our Lord was foretold by the holy prophets, as was His birth. For generations enlightened mankind in the old and the new world anxiously sought the fulfillment of prophecies uttered by righteous men, inspired of Almighty God. Then came that heavenly pronouncement to the shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger, He came forth from heaven to live on earth as mortal man and to establish the kingdom of God. His glorious appeal and His gospel reshaped the thinking of the world He blessed the sick. He caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He even raised the dead to life. He provided for you and for me the greatest gift we shall ever receive, the Atonement and all that it conveys. He willingly died that we might forever live. From time to time, the question has been posed. If Jesus appeared to you today, what questions would you ask of Him? My answer has always been, I would not utter a word. I would listen to Him. Down down through the generations of time, the message from Jesus has been the same. To Peter, by the shores of beautiful Galilee, he said, Follow me. To Philip of old came the call, Follow me. To the Levite, who sat at receipt of customs, came the instruction, Follow me. And to you and to me, if we but listen, shall come that same beckoning invitation, Follow me. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Have we? Of him it was said that he went about doing good. Do we? His beloved apostles noted well his example. He lived not to be ministered unto, but to minister, not to receive, but to give, not to save his life, but to pour it out for others. It has been said, if they would see the star which should at once direct their feet and influence their destiny, they must look for it not in the changing skies of outward circumstances, but each in the depth of his own heart and after the pattern provided by the Master. Reflect for a moment on the experience of Peter at the gate beautiful at the temple, one sympathizes with the plight of the man, lame from birth, who each day was carried to the temple gate, that he might ask alms of all who entered. That he asked alms of Peter and John as they approached him indicates he regarded them no differently from others who must have passed him each day. I love Peter's simple and direct instruction. He said, Look on us the lame man gave heed to them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have been given I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. He stood and walked and entered with them into the temple. Not all who approached the Master abided by His divine direction. I quote, And when He was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to Him, and asked Him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery. Do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Some time ago, I received a touching letter from Randy Spalding, who lived in northern Utah. The letter explained the composition of his family and then the gradual onset of an illness that took his father from a healthy, strong individual to a weak and crippled middle-aged man. The father's physical condition deteriorated until he could not work, could not walk, became confined to a wheelchair, and was almost helpless. Randy told how the family and ward members have taken over the care of the farm, have provided much help to the family. Father can no longer speak. Mother is his constant provider of care. Yet neither of them has uttered or written those words. Why us? Let me return to Randy Spaulding's actual words. He wrote, and I quote, One morning, as I was thinking about the mundane things of life and hurrying out the door to begin the day, I happened to notice my father sitting in the corner of the room reading his scriptures. I stopped and went over to speak to him. I noticed the difficult circumstances he was under. With his right hand, he was trying to hold up his head enough to see me and yet read the Book of Mormon. I learned that at one of the most trying times he still had enough faith to read about a God of love, a God of miracles who heals and makes us whole, and a God of life, eternal life. He continued, My father still believes. Oh, how I long to take him back in time to the pool of Bethesda and to ask our Master, If he would please have mercy on us so that my father also could walk. Having taken up his bed, close quote, his letter continued That day I returned to my bedroom and thanked my heavenly father for a father and a mother second to none. Randy, let us remember that it was not the waters of Bethesda's pool which healed the impotent man. Rather, his blessing came through the touch of the Master's hand. From the beautiful psalm we learn, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. He has heard, and he indeed has blessed you and yours. An angel mother, wife, who without stint sacrifices her own comfort for the blessing of her eternal companion. Neighbors with hands that help, hearts that feel, and whose feet and talents all come quickly to the rescue are manifested blessings of the Lord's promises. Though Bethesda beckons, the Lord has heard, said He, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Even as you desire of me, so shall it be unto you." Elder Harold B. Lee comfort us with these words. Those who have been denied blessings in this life, who say in their heart, If I could have done, I would have done, or I would give if I had. But I cannot, for I have not. The Lord will bless you as though you had done, and the world to come will compensate for those Who desire in their hearts the righteous blessings that they were not able to have because of no fault of their own. On every side there are those who suffer pain, who endure debilitating illness, who battle the demon of depression. Our hearts go out to all. Our prayers ascend in their behalf. Hands that help are extended. I love the sentiment contained in the words of the poem entitled, Living What We Pray For. I knelt to pray when day was done and prayed, O Lord, bless everyone, lift from each saddened heart the pain, and let the sick be well again. And then I awoke another day, carelessly went on my way. The whole day long I did not try to wipe a tear from any eye. I did not try to share the load of any brother on the road. I did not even go to see the sick man just next door to me. Yet once again, when day was done, I prayed, O oh, Lord, bless everyone. But as I prayed into my ear, there came a voice that whispered clear, Pause now, my son, before you pray. Whom have you tried to bless today? God's sweetest blessings always go by hands that serve Him here below. And then I hid my face and cried, Forgive me, God, I have not tried. Let me but live another day, and I will live the way I pray. When I read the phrase from this poem, I hid my face and cried. The hallowed halls of memory prompt me to share a tender, personal account with you. Long years ago, when I served as a bishop, I received notification that Mary Watson, a member of my ward, was a patient in the county hospital. When I went to visit her, I discovered her in a large room with so many beds that it was difficult to single her out. As I identified her bed and approached her, I said, Hello, Mary. She replied, Hello, Bishop. I noticed that a patient in the bed next to Mary Watson covered her face with a bedsheet. I gave Mary Watson a blessing. We chatted. I shook her hand and said goodbye. But I could not leave her side. It was though an unseen hand were resting on my shoulder, and I felt within my soul that I was hearing these words. Go over to the next bed, where the little lady covered her face when you came in. I did so. I have learned in my life never to postpone a prompting. I approached the bedside of the other patient, gently tapped her shoulder, and very carefully pulled back the sheet which had covered her face. Lo and behold, she too was a member of my ward. I had not known she was a patient in the hospital. Her name was Kathleen McKee. When her eyes met mine, she exclaimed through her tears, "Oh, Bishop, when you entered that door, I felt you had come to see me and bless me in response to my prayers. I was rejoicing inside to think that you would know I was here, but when you stopped at the other bed my heart sank, and I knew that you had not come to see me. I said to Kathleen McKee, It does not matter that I didn't know you were here. It is important, however, that our Heavenly Father knew and that you had prayed silently for a priesthood blessing. It was He who prompted me to intrude on your privacy. A blessing was given. A prayer was answered. I bestowed a kiss on her forehead and left the hospital with gratitude in my heart for the promptings of the Spirit. It would be the last time I was to see Kathleen McKee in mortality, but not the last time I heard from her. Upon her death, the hospital called with this message. Bishop Monson, Kathleen McKee, died tonight. She made arrangements that we were to notify you should she pass away. She left for you a key to her basement apartment. Kathleen McKee had no immediate family. With my sweet wife accompanying me, I visited her humble apartment. I turned the key in the door, opened it, switched on the light. There in her immaculate two-room apartment, I saw a small table with a note resting beneath an Alka-Seltzer bottle. The note written in her own hand said, Bishop, my tithing is in this envelope. And the Alka-Seltzer bottle contains coins covering my fast offering. I am square with the Lord. The receipts were written. The sweetness of the night has not been forgotten. Tears of gratitude to God filled my very soul. A message in a birthday card which I received a few weeks ago from parents who last year lost a beautiful daughter to cancer expressed this profound thought. "Quote, And what is as important as knowledge? Ask the mind. Caring and seeing with the heart answered the soul." This expression describes Bethesda's blessing. Of this divine truth, I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: I'm honored to be here to be part of this great conference. I'm glad that the First Presidency saw fit to have me back on the program. (laughs) As we get older, we have some limitations. I understand mine, and sometimes we can learn to sort of plow around them, and where we uh, if our vision starts getting a little weaker, I found that you can compensate by d- doing other things and plowing around that little weakness and maybe strengthening some others. But out of all of that, I want you to know of my love for the gospel and for my knowledge of its truthfulness. We were singing a great song, is that for as the it's the, the intermediate hymn. Now Let Us Rejoice in the Day of Salvation, written by W. W. Phelps. That was written following an incident in, in uh, Independence, Missouri, where Brother Phelps was the editor of a little newspaper. He had a printing press. And the people who were unfriendly towards the Church decided to do away with it. And a mob broke in and burned the building and destroyed the printing press. They burned some 200 homes of the Saints in showing their displeasure over the people following this movement. In that despair, W. W. Phelps wrote those words, Now let us rejoice, and just imagine, in the day of salvation. No longer as strangers on earth need we roam, but to bringing hope and to the people and encouragement that those things will happen in our lives, but we move on because of the truthfulness of what we are attempting to do. I want all of you to know that I know that the work that we do is the gospel of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, as taught by Him when He was upon the earth, when He called apostles and the disciples followed Him, and He carried on His ministry in teaching them. I've often reflected upon the experience that, as told by the Apostle John, of when John and Andrew, these two young men, were introduced to the Savior by John the Baptist. And they followed the Savior and stayed with Him until the tenth hour, as is recorded by John. But they were in His presence. They were with Him. They would have shaken hands with Him. They would have felt the inflection in His voice. They would have heard Him testify who He is, that He came to do the will of the Father. They would have been in that holy presence. And Andrew, in that setting and after having that experience, had to share it with somebody. And Andrew went out and found his brother Simon, and Andrew took Simon to Jesus, and the Savior made Peter out of Simon. But that feeling that Andrew had in his heart that he had to share what he knew and what he felt and what he had seen, And of that beating that would have been in his heart that he had to share it with someone, he shared it with his own brother as he brought him to the Savior. I have been impressed with all of the prophets since the time of the Prophet Joseph Smith, he who, by revelation, received the message, the visit from God the Father and the Son, as Brother Porter has explained to us in detail this morning. I know that that happened, that that took place in ushering in this work. But that visitation took place in giving the Prophet Joseph Smith the desire and the the determination and the ability to withstand withstand all that he did in order to help bring about the Restoration with heavenly messengers and the revelations that came to the Prophet Joseph Smith in ushering in this work, which we declare to all the world, and this work that I know to be true. And of the prophets that have followed since the time of the Prophet Joseph Smith, It's always thrilling to me to read more of the lives of all of those wonderful men. One of those that I would would want to mention here this morning was President David O. McKay, who came into my life as the first that that I knew and had met. I was called to be a stake president in California about the time, just before President McKay, was, was was sustained at a solemn assembly as the president of the Church and as our prophet. Ruby and I drove to Salt Lake to be at, in attendance at that conference. I felt of that spirit and of that leadership and of the direction that President McKay uh, gave to the Church at that time. But, but as we felt that out into the stakes, Later on, I invited him to come to California to dedicate a Church building that we had just finished. That was in the days when we would raise half the money to buy the land and half the money to build a building—not like it is today, but where we had a real ownership in in the Church property and in buildings. But President McKay came. as a a result of my invitation, which surprised me. But we met him at the train and and had these hours with him to have him in our home. But that, that gave me a new vision of the magnitude and the breadth and the importance of the mission that we have here upon the earth to fulfill. Later, President Kimball became a great influence in my life and I'm only mentioning a few because of the shortness of time here this morning, but how President Kimball taught us, but taught us in that wonderful manner of teaching which President Kimball has, of not only teaching from the scriptures and teaching principles and policy and doctrine, but he would do it in a way that he would help lift our hearts and souls. He told us the story of the young soldier who had Gone into the army, and he had written a letter home to his parents, and said they had been out on the firing line, or out on the, uh, out on the, uh, uh, the uh, shooting range, learning to handle the rifle. And they had been, they were taught how to handle the hand grenade. And this young man, in writing home, said. In showing us how to handle a hand grenade, we were throwing duds, ones that weren't real. And he said, when we were throwing duds, I was able to get 35 feet. But today they gave us the real thing, and I got 80 feet. (laughs) But he who could touch our lives in a way that we could see and understand things to be done. I want to remind you that six months ago, following conference on Sunday, we went home to listen to a television program. We were concerned and we wondered what would happen because we knew that President Gordon B. Hinckley, who I've had the privilege and the honor to watch for a number of years before he became our prophet and leader, but to watch in the careful way that he would carry on the affairs of the Church and the responsibilities that had been his while he was a counselor to three presidents. President Hinckley was to command a nationwide television program, and we wondered how it would come across. We knew of the importance of it and what it would mean to us. We knew of the work and the study and the hours of prayer and meditation and study that our prophet and leader had done in being prepared for this exposure, which would amount to some, as the information that I understand has come through, of some 35 million people. You will remember, as I remember now, the anticipation and in the wonderment of how would this go. After that program was over, my heart was beating fast. I was filled with joy and thanksgiving to the Lord for the way our prophet and our leader had handled the interrogation by one who was had a reputation of attempting to ask questions that might be difficult to handle, but for us to witness how our prophet and our leader had been blessed and magnified as I watched his face upon the television—and I'm sure you would have had the same reaction—the world to see with that vast number of people to see what a prophet of God would look like, a handsome man, clean. You could see the outstanding character, the personality of our prophet and leader who would be exposed to that vast audience of people. And then when the interrogator said to President Hinckley, Do you really believe that story, that heavenly beings appeared to that young boy in that grove of trees? Do you really believe that to be true?" And here our prophet just instantly said, of course I do. Isn't it great? (laughs) Those words have been ringing through my ears ever since that happened. Of course I do. Isn't it great in making that pronouncement and that declaration in doing it with such confidence and with that wonderful personality he has to declare that out to all of the world? And we want President Hinckley to know that since that time missionary activity in the United States or in the area of people who have heard that program has picked up and activity has picked up more people that seem to have become interested in the Church because they had seen a living prophet in the flesh stand before that vast audience and declare to the world, of course I do. Isn't it great? And we would hope and pray that the missionaries out throughout the world would have that same feeling and of that same understanding and that same determination to want to so declare this message of hope and salvation and eternal life out to all the world. I leave you my love and my witness that this work is true. I only thank the Lord every day for the health that I have and the determination I have to make the best use of every hour that I have upon the earth to help in the spreading of this work, which I leave you my love, my witness, my own deep knowledge and conviction uh, that it is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
3: Several months ago my husband performed the baptism of a dear friend. As I sat in the service, my mind and heart raced over her years of preparation for that single event. The principles carefully taught, constantly observed, and quietly accepted. The acknowledgment of God's hand in life events. The sweet confirmation of the Spirit as difficult but right choices were made. My mind recalled the past and rejoiced in the present and I couldn't help but anticipate the future. I hoped with all my heart that this good woman would remain actively connected to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the rest of her life, that she would continue to learn and live the gospel and experience the fullness of its blessings. This morning, as I remembered those hopes, I think about the 379,469 others who were baptized last year. And then I think of the rest of us, the roughly 9 million who have stepped into the waters of baptism sometime in the past. Though our stories are individual, each of us came to that ordinance having been taught the true doctrines of the kingdom, having felt the Spirit, having understood how the doctrines fit into the context of our lives and having demonstrated a willingness to try always to live those truths. It seems too hard to think about the possibility, even the probability, that not all of us will continue to cling to the Church and live its principles. Many of us will leave and never return to this happy fellowship. Some of us will leave for a time and find our way back with a heightened sense of gratitude for participation in the kingdom of God on earth. The reality of life is that each of us is daily at risk for drifting or even marching into inactivity. There are so many things in place to help us remain active. This morning I would like to talk about just one of them. I would like to suggest that the ordinary Church classroom is a powerful setting for steady and continued growth in the gospel. Sunday school, Relief Society, Priesthood, Young Women, Primary, Seminary, and Institute classes may be held in dedicated buildings, under a tree, or in a home, but each class is part of a plan for lifelong gospel learning. We can have great expectations for the power of those learning hours. Church classes provide a place where we can repeatedly experience the very things that brought us into the waters of baptism where we learn doctrine and receive the ratifying witness of its truth, where we come to understand how doctrine is applied in the reality of our daily lives and accept the challenge to change our behavior accordingly. The fundamental curriculum for all classes in the Church is the scriptures. They contain the unchanging doctrines of the kingdom of God. These truths are what brought us into the Church. If we fail to continue learning them, we may not stay. You shall teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom, that you may be prepared in all things. President Boyd K. Packer said, True doctrine, understood, changes attitudes and behavior. How do we know which doctrine to teach each week? It's stated in the lesson objective. But how do we come to understand the doctrine in a way that it will change our attitudes and behavior? In order to really understand, we have to see the way doctrine is applied. In the lesson manuals, the the suggested stories, examples, activities, and games are intended to help the learners understand doctrine in real-life settings. Because the daily life of people varies so much in the 160 different countries where we have organized classes, the stories and examples in the manuals may sometimes confuse the learners. Teachers can prayerfully make adaptations always taking care that the learning activities chosen truly reflect the doctrine. A teacher's goal is greater than just delivering a lecture about truth. It is to invite the Spirit and use techniques which will enhance the possibility that the learner will discover the truth for herself and then be motivated to apply it. Although some seem to be born teachers, teaching skills can be learned. Where can you go as a teacher to enhance your skills? Could you watch and learn from others? Perhaps approach an an admired teacher, asking him to observe and offer suggestions? What about your primary presidency if you are a primary teacher or your Sunday school presidency if you teach Sunday school? Asking your Ward Teacher Development Coordinator for regular and specific help would put you in touch with a multitude of resources. We don't have to struggle alone in this Church. There is help everywhere. We can prayerfully and courageously seek to learn and practice new techniques. I had a conversation once with a young man whom I cannot forget. His story of activity, complete inactivity, and a return to activity included the description of two classrooms. He said, When I was about 15, I started to have a lot of questions about the Church. I thought maybe there would be a chance to talk about my questions at Church, but it didn't happen. In priesthood, it seemed like most of the time everybody talked about the game the night before. Sunday school was about the same—maybe a little lesson thrown in during the last five minutes where the teacher asked questions and it was kind of guess the right answer from the manual time. Well. Other things happened—late Saturday nights, a switch to an earlier meeting schedule, and soon the young man's attendance dropped to nothing. Several years passed by until he found himself in church again. This time his face lit up as he described his Sunday school class. The teacher was this unimpressive-looking guy. But he was so excited about what he was teaching. He didn't waste a minute. He asked important questions. Everyone had their scriptures. They looked up verses, shared ideas. They listened to each other. They talked about problems at school and how they fit in with the lesson. You could tell that the people in the class were all different. But they had one amazing thing in common. They were all interested in learning the gospel. After five minutes, I knew that this was a good place for me. What a difference in those two experiences! Can you imagine hundreds of thousands of classrooms every Sunday, each with a teacher who understands that the learning has to be done by the pupil? Therefore it is the pupil who has to be put into action. When a teacher takes the spotlight, becomes the star of the show, does all the talking, and otherwise takes over all of the activity, it is almost certain that he is interfering with the learning of the class members. A skilled teacher doesn't think, What shall I do in class today? But asks, What will my students do in class today? Not, What will I teach today? Rather, How will I help my students discover what they need to know? The skilled teacher does not want students who leave the class talking about how magnificent and unusual the teacher is. This teacher want students who leave the class talking about how magnificent the gospel is. Learning occurs best in an atmosphere of trust and safety. This means that each person's questions and contributions are respected. When we feel safe and included, we can ask questions that will help us to understand the gospel. We can share insights and faith that might help someone else. We can stumble without embarrassment as we try to apply the lessons taught. Conversely, when we feel that we must protect and defend ourselves or seem more righteous than we are, our energy is used counterproductively and our learning and the learning of others is severely limited. Maintaining a climate of trust and safety is a responsibility the teacher and the learners share. I've heard Sister Jeanette Beckham, Young Women General President, talk simply about teaching a class. She says, It is the teacher's responsibility to introduce the lesson and help lay the groundwork. The middle part belongs to the students where they participate and work toward understanding and application. Then the teacher must watch the time because she owns the last few minutes of class. She has a responsibility to clarify and summarize the doctrine taught so that learners will not leave confused about the message. Then she can bear personal testimony of the principal under discussion. In conclusion, will you come with me into a classroom of 12- and 13-year-old young women? Listen as you hear the learners discover doctrine. Notice the experience the teacher provides for the learners so that they can connect the doctrine to the reality of their lives. Feel the accompanying witness of the Spirit. Our teacher moves her chair closer into the semicircle of five girls. We have a guest waiting outside. She begins, It is Sister Jonas. She's agreed to show us her tiny baby and tell us how she feels about being a new mother. As you watch this new little baby, would you also notice his mother, how she treats the baby, what she does, what she says? We'll talk about her visit after she leaves. Sister Jonas comes in, spends seven or eight minutes talking about her baby and answering questions. The girls thank her, and she leaves the classroom. The baby was darling, wasn't he? Our teacher responds to the delighted hum of the class. But what did you notice about the mother? A minute of silence, and then a response. Well, she was happy. Another. She was. She kind of rocked back and forth the whole time she was holding him. A few more responses, and then Katie slowly begins. She. She. Um. She talked really quietly. Could you say more about that? The teacher coaxes. Well, her voice reminds me of my mother's voice when she called from the hospital to tell us we had a new baby sister last year. The teacher turning to the other girls. What do you think? Did anyone else notice her voice? The girls become more thoughtful and begin to reply with words like reverence, heaven, love. The teacher, I think I understand. I believe those words come to our minds because we are recognizing a great gift from our Heavenly Father. He loves us and trusts us so much that He is willing to share His creative powers with us. We feel such gratitude and reverence for this trust. Motherhood is a divine role. After this clear statement of doctrine and testimony, our teacher moves on to an activity where the girls identify qualities their own mothers exhibit that show an understanding of the divinity of motherhood. Could each of you prepare for motherhood right now by practicing one of these very virtues, maybe being more patient, kinder, or more positive this week? Each girl talks about her choice. Our teacher bears personal testimony. The closing prayer is offered. A simple class. No sensational stories. No scholarly class members. Just ones who come prepared to participate. No extraordinarily gifted teacher, just one who prayerfully prepares and uses techniques that allow her to help class members understand and apply true doctrine. I telephoned our newly baptized friend last week to ask how things were going for her. Her response was enthusiastic. My husband and I have been called to teach the 15- and 16-year-olds, and I'm learning so much. I felt reassured and excited. What better place for her than a classroom—and for each of us? President Hinckley encourages us, We are all in this together, all of us, and we have a great work to do. Every teacher can be a better teacher than he or she is today. I would add, every learner, learner can be a better learner than he or she is today, and every classroom can be a better classroom. I pray that we will continue to hold on to one another through effective classroom learning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
4: 176 years ago, an event occurred which lies at the very foundation of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days. It is, in my judgment, the most significant event that has occurred in this world since the Son of God walked forth from the tomb a resurrected being. I refer to that first heavenly vision that came to the Prophet Joseph Smith. Let me read his words. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day, early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt. For amidst all my anxieties, I had never as yet made an attempt to pray vocally. After I had retired to the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around myself and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. He then described a few moments of severe spiritual anguish, convincing him that the forces of evil were real and powerful, And Then he continued, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. That single event changed the future of the world. The appearance of the Father and the Son to the young prophet ushered in the dispensation of the fullness of times. It exemplified God's love for His children and changed the world forever. How can one know of a surety that Joseph Smith actually saw and conversed with the Father and the Son? How can one ascertain the truthfulness of our bold assertion that God speaks to the world today through His prophets? God has provided a way. Speaking of the supernal glory of that first vision, President Gordon B. Hinckley has said, Much has been written— Much will be written in an effort to explain it away. The finite mind cannot comprehend it, but the testimony of the Holy Spirit, experienced by countless numbers of people all through the years since it happened, bears witness that it is true, that it happened as Joseph Smith said it happened, that it was as real as the sunrise over Palmyra that it is an essential foundation stone, a cornerstone, without which the Church could not be fitly framed together. Quote. I repeat, the testimony of the Holy Spirit bears witness that it is true. That testimony is the means in most instances by which God reveals truth to mankind. It is not a new or strange phenomenon, but is as old as the human race, the scriptures are replete with examples of God communicating with man. By revelation, Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and all the faithful former day Saints came to know of sacred things. Nephi of ancient days taught this principle to his people. He said, And now I, Nephi, cannot write all the things which were taught among my people. Neither am I mighty in writing, like unto speaking. For when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children of men. But behold, there are many that harden their hearts against the Holy Spirit, that it hath no place in them. Wherefore they cast many things away which are written, and esteem them as things of naught. The Holy Spirit does not teach the proud the unteachable, the indolent, or the doubter. A deep desire for truth and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will prepare one's heart to be taught spiritual things. The Lord Jesus Christ directs His work on the earth by revelation through the Holy Spirit. The power of this revelatory spirit moves and motivates an army of more than 52,000 missionaries who take the gospel message to the four corners of the earth. When they are successful in their work, it is because of the witness they bear, a witness accompanied and confirmed by the power of the Holy Ghost. The Lord describes His emissaries as weak, unlearned, and despised, but He promises that through their efforts He will thrash the nations by the power of His Spirit. When President Hinckley returned from the, from the British Isles last fall, he told us of an interview he had with a member of the British broadcasting company Radio Services. The reporter asked President Hinckley, quote, How do you expect people to listen to these callow youth? Close quote. President Hinckley had to explain to some of us that callow meant immature, inexperienced, and lacking sophistication. Then he pointed out to this reporter that quote, people do receive them and listen to them. They are wholesome. They are bright. They are alert. They are clean. And then at the General Conference Priesthood Session held in October of last year, he said, speaking of the missionaries, quote, they are a miracle. They speak out of their hearts with personal conviction. Each is an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their power comes not of their learning in the things of the world. Their power comes from faith and prayer and humility. Jesus' commandment to preach the gospel to all nations is obeyed as the servants of God bear testimony in humility across the earth, and the Lord responds to their sacrifices and bears witness of their words by revelation. Some years ago I enjoyed a state conference assignment as a junior companion to Elder LeGrand Richards, who had, under the influence of this directing spirit, reorganized the state presidency. We were driving home. He was very pensive. After a rather long period of silence, I asked him if there was something he would like to teach me. Quietly, he said we have too many in the Church who deny the spirit of prophecy and of revelation. That was it. He said no more about it. As I reminisced about the calling of the new state president that day, it occurred to me that this Church could not function for even one day without the spirit of prophecy and revelation. But ours is a day of dwindling faith, and increasing skepticism about sacred things. Our time reminds me of the period just prior to the coming of the resurrected Savior to this continent. They were very dark days. Mormon recorded the roots of the problems that beset Nephite society when he said, And it was because of the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches. Yea, it was because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry withholding their clothing from the naked and smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek. Note this, making a mock of that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and of revelation. Later Mormon continues, And because of their iniquity the Church had begun to dwindle, and they began to disbelieve in the spirit of prophecy and in the spirit of revelation, and the judgments of God did stare them in the face. We boldly assert that the spirit of revelation rests upon the Lord's living prophets, seers, and revelators. President Spencer W. Kimball, from this very pulpit, bore his testimony when he said, I say in the deepest of humility, but also by the power of force of a burning testimony in my soul, that from the prophet of the Restoration to the prophet of our own year, the communication line is unbroken. The authority is continuous, and light, brilliant and penetrating, continues to shine. The sound of the voice of the Lord is a continuous melody and a thunderous appeal. Quote. When the appointed servants of this church speak under the influence of the Holy Ghost as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, their words are carried by the power of the Spirit to those whose hearts are open to revelation. When with heavenly power that witness comes to a person, he or she will soon understand that personal sacrifice is its constant companion. The spiritual witness of these sacred things and the demands of sacrifice inevitably walk the road together. In time, one comes to understand the necessity of this and is filled with gratitude that it is so. The most important knowledge to be gained in this life is that which comes by revelation through the Holy Spirit. This is not to be little in any way information available in a multitude of disciplines or fields of study, but any of it individually or all of it together can never equal the importance of receiving the personal witness born on the wings of the Spirit of sacred things. That witness brings light and certainty and peace. I raise my voice and state again that Joseph Smith saw the Father and the Son. This certain knowledge is independent of all mortal men, for this conviction has come to me by the Holy Spirit as promised. The kingdom of God on earth continues to move forward with dedicated missionary and member alike, having the conviction confirmed by the Holy Ghost that Joseph Smith saw God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It moves forward empowered by the assurance in the heart of each faithful member individually that those who lead us do so with the spirit of prophecy and revelation. We must never lose this precious gift. We must pay whatever price of faith and obedience is required to retain this great blessing. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.